You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. We are looking at Psalm 25 to Psalm 27 today. Let's open with a word of prayer and then we'll get into the word of God tonight. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for the book of Psalms. As someone prayed there, we just thank you that it shows us how to worship, it shows us about your character, and it allows us to express ourselves in human emotions, Lord. And we pray that through the text tonight, through my words, that you would edify your body and you would give Christ the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are on Psalm 25. We've been working our way through. This is another Psalm of David. And this is really another prayer, kind of. A lot of the Psalms, obviously, are kind of like prayers in that respect. But this is really a prayer that he would continue to walk on the right road under very difficult circumstances. David, obviously, we've studied his life in detail through the historical books. He had a lot of ups and downs in his life. Let me read to you just a quote from, this is from the Word, Biblical Commentary, uh, related to this particular psalm. It says this about prayer. The prayer is that of a person who has made the choice and is walking the road of the righteous. But the dispassionate wisdom has been transformed to passionate petition. For the right road is not an easy one on which to walk. The essence of the road of the righteous is this. It is a road too difficult to walk without the companionship and the friendship of God. Psalm 1 is a signpost which directs the wise to the choice of the right road. Psalm 25 is a companion for use along the way. I really like the way he's worded that. This psalm is a companion for uh, use along the way. And you get this sort of picture of the travelling pilgrim. Let's get into Psalm 25. Uh, Let's read the first few verses. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exult over me. Indeed, None of those who wait for you will be ashamed. Those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. Now, we don't know exactly when this was written in relation to what was happening in David's life. But again, it would seem to be that it's in a time of sort of trouble. It seems that David is looking around at his external circumstances and he is downtrodden. He wants his soul to be lifted up. He's afflicted and he's ashamed. That word there is used in the sense of disappointed. That's a slightly different connotation, ashamed in our language, but disappointed is what that means. He is confused. You may even say in today's vocabulary that he was depressed. He's trying to work these things out in his head. Now, we can all relate to this, especially if you're an overthinker. Sometimes these feelings come from our own minds, from our own sin sometimes. Often they are put on us by circumstances from outside that are beyond our control. Whatever the case, the psalmist here is saying that there is really only one true remedy for the believer, and that is to lift up the downtrodden soul to God. And what that means when you lift up your soul to God, it's an act of submission, and it's an act of dependency upon the Almighty God. This is what the psalmist is saying here. In the midst of everything, I look to you, I submit to you, and I trust in you. This is what the downtrodden soul must do. Oh my God, in you I trust. And when I read that little verse, verse 2 there, it very much reminds me of, you know, what you see on the back of an American currency. In God we trust. In you I trust. In God we trust. 
Um, let me read to you, just, this is just a small segment of a letter from the, the Treasury of the United States to the US Mint Director, written in 1861, where they were having this debate about what to put on the back of their coin, of their currency. He said this, No nation can be strong except in the strength of God, or safe except in his defence. The trust of our people in God should be declared on our national coins. You will cause a device to be prepared without delay, with a motto expressing in the fewest and tersest words possible this national recognition. And he came up with, in God we trust. And I, I reckon he probably got this from this verse here, which says, in you we trust, in God we trust. Those who trust God will not be disappointed. We have faith uh, in, in you I trust. is really a very good, simple definition of what we mean by faith. It's a, a trust in the sufficiency of the one trusted. That's a good little definition of faith. And it says, those, none of those who wait for you will be ashamed. And again, that means we will not be disappointed. God will come through. He is reliable in everything. We see the same sort of word meaning in the New Testament. Let me read to you Romans 9, verse 33. It says, verse 3, sorry. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offence, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. That's sort of the equivalent of will not be ashamed of saying the same thing there. And it says the enemies, obviously, in the verse we've just read, those who deal treacherously, they will be disappointed. They will. God will not uh, support them in that respect. Let's look at verse 4. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, your compassion and your loving kindness, for they have been from old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your loving kindness, remember me. For your goodness sake, O Lord. I love this, these few verses. We have this threefold request of David. And if you're ever stuck what to pray in your morning prayer life, if you feel like you're just going over the same things, asking for this, asking for that, praying for your day, for your kids, for your family, keep doing that, obviously, it's not what I'm saying. But if you want to sort of mix it up a bit, use what David says here. You can pray for your own spiritual life. He says, make your ways known. So let's call that show me. Then he says, teach me. And then he says, lead me. That is three beautiful prayers. Show me your ways, teach me your paths, and lead me in your truth. And I believe that should really be the prayer of every believer. Look at what else we learn about God in this little section here. We know that God is not silent. A teacher is not silent. God wants to teach his disciples, his children. Therefore, he has revealed himself, revealed things to us. And often when we get confused, when we get bogged down, when we get our eyes off the cross or our eyes off the Lord, that is the very thing we need to be praying. We need to be understanding. We need to come back to God as a teacher. He loves to instruct us. One thing that will stand out to you as we go through these Psalms, it probably already has, is just how many times the writers of the Psalms ask God to teach them to instruct them, to lead them along the path of righteousness. You see, he loves to do that. It's for our own good. It's very easy to get apathetic in this world. I would say right now, during this sort of unusual period, it's quite easy to get apathetic or to sort of get too used to being on lockdown or all these different things. 
Christian routines can become very normal if we let them, and there's a danger in that. It's good to have routine in some respects, but we also don't want to end up being so familiar with the things we do in church that we lose what it is we're actually doing or who it is we're actually worshipping in the midst of all that. It's easy to fall into that trap. What we have to remember here is that we get to be instructed, to be taught from the eternal omniscient, that is the all-knowing God. We all love to ask questions of people who we know are going to have some good answers for us, don't we? We get to be instructed by the living God who knows all things. And this is one of the primary meaning of what it is to be a disciple. The word literally means to be a learner. If to be a learner, we must have a teacher. God is that great teacher. The word of God is how he has revealed himself to us, illuminated by the Holy Spirit. We have these resources available to us and we must avail ourselves of them in this world. It also says, for you are the God of my salvation. And I believe David is probably referring, using the salvation term there. Obviously, we always think spiritually when we hear salvation. Uh, in the Hebrew mindset, they also meant they would use that term a lot for physical salvation. He probably has both in mind here, to be honest. Physically and spiritually, we know that David's running in the wilderness. The Lord did deliver him many times. We wait for the Lord. It says, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. Basically, we wait for the Lord because he is the one who has saved us. He is the omniscient one. He is the one who has the answers. And I'd say it's, it's very easy to forget what it actually is to be saved. You know, once you've been a Christian for a little period of time, you're just a Christian. And it, it's, it's quite easy to forget what that actually means for your life or what the privilege of that actually is. And I would also say the danger, the flip side of that coin, is it's very easy to forget what it is to be lost. More, like, quite importantly, we have to try and always remember where it was we came from. And that's why, like in the Psalms and in the Proverbs, you have this sort of juxtaposition of these two ways, path of righteousness and the path of darkness in that respect. Because it, it reminds you that the path of darkness leads to destruction and God has done everything necessary to transfer you and now he's leading you. Show me your ways, teach me your paths, lead me in your truth. This is what the word of God does. This is one of the things that salvation has accomplished for us. Now, I would say also it's very easy to, to live as if neither of these things are true. We sort of live half in the Christian world. We sort of live quite similar to a lot of people who don't know the Lord in many ways. If people were to observe us sometimes, if we took out Sunday from the equation on a busy week, I'm talking about myself here as much as anyone, would they even know that you're a Christian? It's quite hard. It's, you know, it's very easy just to fall into these habits because life is just busy. It fills up with things that we do. And that's why I love the Psalms, because the Psalms have this mindset where they show you a man who's going through all the trials and tribulations, all the down, the low, the depressive moments of life, but still his heart is calling on the Lord for that instruction and that teaching. And he gets it throughout the book. It doesn't mean he doesn't fall over and stumble again, but he is seeking after the Lord. And that is an example for us in this world. God of my, so then verse six, he says, remember, O Lord, your compassion and your loving kindness. You see, both of these things are in abundance with the Lord, compassion and loving kindness. This is one of the reasons why we have such confidence in trusting in him. You could read compassion, the same word, you could also say mercies for that. And that word loving kindness is such a rich and beautiful word in the Hebrew there. It really means, you could say deeds of loyal love, you could say covenant faithfulness, it is that love that flows from a bond of commitment, a covenant. 
Covenants are so we don't really think covenantally in our mind. We think about getting saved, hear the gospel, and you're going to heaven and you're saved. In this mindset, it was about entering into covenant, into that community and that fellowship. Now we enter in through the new covenant. What are we saying when someone when we say they got saved? Are we not just saying that they have now entered into the new covenant? That's exactly what we're saying, because it was the new covenant. Uh, the blood of the new covenant shed for the remission of sins. It's what we remember at communion. So there's nothing wrong with thinking in that sort of covenantal sense. And it's good because a covenant is a commitment. A commitment by, made by someone. And we know it is made by God. Who is the eternal, unchanging, forever. Who is full of mercy, full of compassion. If we're going to enter into a covenant, there's no one else you'd rather do it with. This is part of what salvation is, looking at it from a different angle. You see, the psalmist knows that he cannot honestly be directed on God's path according to what he's just asked for in those three things, the show me, teach me, and lead me that I mentioned earlier. But first he has to deal with his past wanderings, the times that he has come off the path. And he has this little phrase, do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. Now in David's mind, maybe he's recalling Bathsheba and that whole episode or many other things probably in his life. And I think we all understand this. It's very easy to look back at the things we've done in our, in our youth or even in our present or it could be not a far period of time back. And we just look at them and we think, why did we do that? You know, we knew, you know, it's so easy with, with hindsight looking back and thinking like, ah, oh. but in the moment, even if sometimes if we know it's stepping onto that wrong path, we just do it. And this again, we see David here as he declares that he wants to follow and be instructed and taught by the Lord, he also acknowledges, do not remember the sins of my youth. Spurgeon said this of this verse, he said, the bones of our youthful feastings at Satan's table will stick painfully in our throats when we are old. And he had a way with words, and I love that. And if you've been a Christian for any period of time, you'll know that sometimes just one of those things from your past will just jump up in your mind. You see something, you hear something, you meet someone that just remembers something in your mind. And like, I know exactly what he's talking about here. And it's, it just, you look back and you're like, oh, Lord, don't remember the sins of my past. And obviously when he's saying don't remember, he's not saying like the Lord could forget that the Lord is omniscient, he knows all things. It's meaning forget as in, in the sense of forgive and therefore do not bring up to account anymore. Very much what we see in Psalm 103, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That's really the thought that David is expressing here. Let's read verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in justice and he teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. He instructs sinners. And again, we qualify for the Lord's instruction. That's us, redeemed sinners. But the good news is we qualify for the Lord's instruction. To benefit from this instruction, however, it says he, we need to be humble. He leads the humble in justice. And this is obviously something that we wrestle with in our flesh all the time. But really this is speaking of an attitude of acknowledging who God is in comparison to who you are and bowing low to the sovereign of the universe. 
It's a willingness to be instructed, a willingness to acknowledge our failings, a willingness to listen to the word of the Lord as he leads us into all truth. Exactly the things that David was asking for in the previous section. Uh, a well-known Christian phrase with no one really attributed to it. It says this, it is at the foot of the cross that humility is born. We see that and the imagery there, I think, is just powerful as you're thinking about that. That is uh, where humility is born. You cannot help but be amazed by the love of God in that moment. It says in verse 10, his past, all the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth. And this is important to remember. His way, the Lord's way, the way that he wants us to walk, the path of righteousness is loving kindness and truth together. And I think this is a lesson for us to remember in our culture because often we are told that the loving thing to do is lay aside truth in order not to offend. Love is interpreted as not offending generally in today's culture. So you lay aside your truth in order not to offend. That is how the world wants us to look at it. But the Lord says here, his path, his way is loving kindness and truth together. You cannot lay aside one or the other. If you think you're being loving by laying aside truth, you've been deceived. You have to have truth together because these are both really attributes of God. God is love and God is also described as a God of truth in that sense. Now to the believer, obviously, I don't believe this is really an option. None of us should be seeking. We can be sensitive with what we share. There's many ways we can engage the culture but we have to have truth as our forefront, as the, you know, it's one of the, the sword of the spirit, isn't it? It's the, the defensive weapon that we are given and loving kindness and truth go together always. He says in verse 11, for your namesake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. And you can really sense the struggle again in David's heart here as he's pouring himself out to the Lord, as he's asking to be taken further into that relationship with the Lord, this concept of his past sins, of his of his own unworthiness before a sovereign God keeps coming up and he keeps confessing it. He keeps asking the Lord, just, he just lays it before the Lord. This is a man of prayer who had long loved and served the Lord. And you see sort of side by side with this, this continual consciousness and a profound sense of sin and the need that God needs to pardon that. And you'll find as you, if you've walked with the Lord for any period of time, this consciousness of transgression and a cry for pardon are really inseparable. They are permanent accompaniments of a devout life, I believe, all along its course. Because the closer you get to holiness, the more it exposes your own life and the more you need to be cleansed. You see that these things will always go together. And I think David here is giving us a perfect example of that. Because if we stay away from the light, then we won't get certain things you know, illuminated that need to be but then you won't obviously also get the confession and the conviction of the spirit that causes you to confess those things. So this is, if you want to get intimate and close with God, he's going to show you some things in your life that he wants to deal with. He wants to shine that light upon. This is really the root and beginning of godliness. We see this in David's life here. Verse 12, who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way he should choose. His soul will abide in prosperity and his descendants will inherit the land. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him and he will make them know his covenant. My eyes are continually toward the Lord for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Oswald Chambers in his famous devotional interpreted this verse by saying that the one who fears the Lord is the one who is obsessed with God. Let me just go into that a little bit. 
We are all obsessed with something, whether it be ourselves or our careers or our jobs or a million and one other things that we could be obsessed with. The psalmist says that we are to be obsessed with God. And obsessed meaning in the sense that we have an abiding awareness of the Christian life that the most important thing is not just thoughts about God, but God himself. He should consume our thought life. The total being of our life, inside and out, is to be absolutely obsessed by the presence of God. This is what it means in Acts when it says you live and you move and you have your being in him. Live, move, have your, have your being. Everything you're doing in life, you want to have that obsession in your life. It is a good obsession in that sense. We look at everything in relation to him because our abiding awareness of him will continually push you and push him to the forefront of our lives. And if we are that obsessed with God, if I can say it like that, things will not get into your life so easily that concern you. Tribulations and worries. The more obsessed you are with God, the more equipped you will be to overcome these things in the power of the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. To be obsessed by God is to have that barricade against the assaults of the enemy, or as Ephesians puts it, the fiery darts of the wicked one. It says we will abide in prosperity, those who have that. This is Again, for me, I see this as a very similar concept as our life, those who are so obsessed that our life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, prosperity is not necessarily just referring to what we might consider prosperity. I believe it's really talking about a, a state of being that is in full fellowship, intimate covenant relationship with God. And then that little verse, that little phrase that says the secret of the Lord will be revealed to him. Now, I like this, you know, People who have that attitude, that obsession with God, the secrets of the Lord will be revealed to him. Now, this is a concept. The Lord has secrets. We might think of it like that. Let me just sort of explain what I believe this is getting at. We see a parallel even in human relationships. Now, think of those who you share your deepest thoughts with, those who you are comfortable sharing your deepest thoughts with, those who know you the best, those who can sense what you're thinking almost just by looking at your body language, those who you're comfortable sharing, sitting with, even being in silence. It's the ones who really have that proven track record of loving you, of supporting you, of caring you, etc., etc. Now, we may call these a wife or a husband. We may call this a best friend in that. In fact, some translations actually have friendship of the Lord in that, for that phrase there, friendship of the Lord. This is the concept. John 14, 21, he who has my commandment and keeps them is the one who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will disclose myself to him. The Lord will reveal himself to you in secret ways as you love him, as you walk with him, as you keep his commandments. This is an intimacy with God that we should all desire. This is why it's said of David that he was a man you know, who pants after God in that sense, because he desired that intimacy. doesn't mean that he was always a, a righteous man and he didn't have any sin in his life. We know he's just confessed it in, in this very plea to be instructed in God's truth. It's just, it's that intimacy he desires. And then it says, uh, if you read it, the secret of the Lord, and it says his eyes are always fixed on him. And this kind of reminds me of Hebrews 12 too, where it says we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And then the final verse, my eyes are continually toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. He will pluck my feet out of the net. Now, this is quite strong imagery that we have here. Now, if you think of your feet being stuck in a net, you're not going to go anywhere. You know, you're going to trip over, you're going to fall, you're going to stumble, you're not going to be moving, you're not 
going to be able to walk your Christian life. You're not able to move forward, to walk along the path of righteousness of what we're talking about here. You may be trapped by sin, you may be trapped by circumstances, but the point is, if your eyes are looking towards the Lord, he is the one who will lift you out of that. It may be through brothers and sisters in the body, it may be through an indirect means in that respect, but it's your trust and your faith in him that will get you through that. Look at verse 16. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lovely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Look upon my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Look upon my enemies, for they are many and they hate me with violent hatred. Guard my soul and deliver me. Do not let me be ashamed, for I take refuge in you. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all your troubles. Again here we see the sort of the mindset of David, lonely, afflicted, distressed, troubled. And this tells us it's okay to have these feelings in situations that life throws at you. You know, being a follower of the Lord does not mean you're not going to have these emotional experiences and reactions to things. It just means that you know where to take them when you have them. You have to be wise in where you turn when you find yourself in these situations. We ask God for forgiveness and we ask God for direction. Show me, teach me, lead me. It's easy to become bitter at the circumstances that life can throw you. We end up resenting things, we end up resenting people. Again, I would say if you're in that situation, that's the same that David is describing. Your feet are stuck in that net. You won't be able to move forward from that. It is the Lord who will deliver you. And that's why it says we need to wait on the Lord. It's the final, the final verse in that sense. We wait on the Lord. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Now, in this very last verse, I like what David does here. You see, he looks away from his own trouble. You see, he's been talking about himself a lot in this psalm, and that's, that's absolutely fine to an extent. But I like now, he turns his focus to the troubles of his nation. And there's a lesson in that for us. If we focus too much on ourselves and on our own circumstances and our own troubles, it just makes the problem seem bigger and bigger and bigger, more overwhelming and harder to accomplish. Sometimes when we step back and we look at through at what others are going through, he was looking at his nation, we could look at the body of Christ globally as that covenant community. The wider problems, when, when you see, you read and you hear, it can sometimes just bring a little perspective to the things that, that we go through. And again, we commit them to the Lord. Now summary, what do we learn from this psalm? It's just an amazing psalm. We learn that God can be trusted, that he's trustworthy. Verse 3, we learn that God is faithful. Verse 4 and 5, we learn that God speaks truth. Verse 5, we learn that God is a saviour. Verse 6, that he is merciful, he is loving, and he is loyal. Verse 8, that he is good and upright. Verse 11, that he is forgiving. God is, verse 14, that he is open and he confides in us. And verse 16, that God is gracious. And verse 20 and 15, that God is powerful enough to rescue us and be our refuge. It's Psalm 25, it's an amazing psalm. Let's jump straight in as we go to Psalm 26. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and my heart for your loving kindness is before my eyes and I have walked in your truth. I do not sit with deceitful men, nor will I go with pretenders. I hate the assembly of evildoers and I will not sit with the wicked. I shall wash my hands in innocence and I will go about your altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and declare all your wonders. 
David again asks for vindication here due to his faithful life. And I, I believe he's again referring to his conduct in some of the circumstances with Saul and these sorts of things that he's referring to. He again, though, immediately, this is not a self-righteous sort of, I did really good, aren't I so great, Lord? Because immediately he, he, he asks the Lord to search his heart. And that is the sign of someone who's not trying to hide sin, not trying to puff himself up. Someone who can call a spade a spade. You know, if he did something right, that's fine. But he also knows he has many failings in his life. 2 Corinthians 13.5, remember this verse, where it says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognise this about yourselves, that Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. David invites the Lord to examine him, to try his heart and his mind. And it says, for your loving kindness, uh, sorry, it says, I have walked in integrity, and I, verse 3, I have walked in your truth. So he's walking in integrity because he's walking in truth. And walking in truth is a very big theme of the Bible. So it's very self-explanatory, self but we see it all over the place. The Lord promised to David, I believe this is what he's drawing on with this sort of language. In 1 Kings 2, chapter 4, I'll read this to you. This is the, the Lord promised this to David, and David is now saying it to Solomon during his final days. He says, verse 4, So that the Lord may carry out his promise which he spoke to me concerning, saying, If your sons are careful of their walk, to walk before me in truth, that's the phrase, with all their heart, with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. This was the promise of walking in truth. And again, we see it in the New Testament. Second John 1, 4. I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we have received commandment to do from the Father. This has always been God's command to us to walk in truth. 3 John, chapter 1, verse 3 to 4. For I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth. That is how you are walking in truth. That same principle. And then he says, I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in truth. And obviously this is John talking about his disciples, but I think the principle can be extended to God being pleased when his children walk in truth. And for me, that's a big concept. How do we, as mere humans bring joy to an almighty sovereign God who needs nothing, wants nothing in that respect, quite simply by walking in his truth. He will get that joy as his children walk in truth too. And of course, the opposite is also true. We can walk in darkness. 1 John 1, 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. This is that second part the psalmist mentions. 2 Corinthians 4.2, it says, not walking in craftiness. Walking in craftiness, that's a funny term, that, isn't it? And then it says, or adultering the word of God. So remember, one is walking in truth, truth being the word of God. One is walking in craftiness, adulterating the word of God, using it wrongly, abusing it, any sort of thing could apply to that. Whether we like to admit it or not, all of these things, walking in truth, walking in darkness, does speak about the company we keep. I think that's what happens in this psalm where he goes into these next part. And he says, now listen, I'm not talking about isolating from the world so that you don't have any contact with the, you know, the unrighteous in that respect. I'm not talking about the, whether it's okay to have Christian friends and all those sorts of things. I hope we can, you, that's not my point here. But it's more an attitude of where you place yourself. 
You see, there are some situations, social situations maybe, that if you place yourself in them, you are more than likely going to stumble. And quite often we put ourselves in those situations willingly. I think that's the point that he's getting at here. If your heart is longing or if you are naive enough or you've sort of self-convinced yourself that you'll be okay in those situations, you can do this or that or all these different situations, then you very well may be setting yourself up for failure. And I would say, if that's the case, then like David, maybe it's time to ask the Lord to examine your heart on these issues. David says he will not mix with deceitful men, with pretenders, with groups of evildoers or the wicked. All these different phrases that he has here. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says on this. He says many people have a strong desire to meet celebrated or important people, including those whom they actually disapprove of. But I am inclined to think a Christian would be wise to avoid where he decently can any meeting with people who are bullies, lasciviousness or cruel or dishonest, spiteful and so forth. Not because we're too good for them. In a sense, we are not good enough. We are not good enough to cope with all the temptations, nor clever enough to cope with all the problems which an evening spent in such society produces. Now, this is not a blanket rule that I'm saying here. I know there are many people that God has given gifts to that, that they can go and be that shining light into this situation. There's always exceptions. But I've also seen many, many, many times in my Christian walk those who put themselves in these situations and they get swayed, influenced and turned away and they take that one step onto the wrong path and things happen. It says instead, in the, back in, Psalm, in the psalm now, it says instead, and I love this little verse, he goes about the altar. He will walk around the altar, looking at that blood, looking at that sacrifice, looking at all the, the four horns, the smoke rising from the sacrificial victim, the priests officiating, and he gives praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. This is really a survey of redemption as I see it. This points us to the cross that obviously the altar speaks of, the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. It's the place of forgiveness, it's the place that sinners can go to, offer their sacrifice, and ultimately we have that Sacrifice that was offered once and for all, for all time, that Christ can forgive us. That's why we have praise and thanksgiving when we think about the cross. It causes us to remember and it causes us joy in our life. Look at verse 8. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not take my soul away along with sinners, nor my life with men of bloodshed, in whose hands is a wicked scheme and whose right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me, be gracious to me. My foot stands on a level place. In the congregations, I shall bless the Lord. So because he walks in truth, he doesn't join himself to certain people. He won't put himself in situations willingly. Now, that's what he doesn't do. Now we have what he does do. What does he do? He loves the house of the Lord. He loves the dwelling place of God. And again, this is a brilliant example for us today. This really means he loves the presence of God. He loves his saints. He loves the priests. He loves the service. He loves the word of God, the prayer, the worship, the praise, the fellowship. Everything that would be happening in the sacred sanctuary of the tabernacle that he's talking about, the, much of what is sort of comparable to what we would do in church life and fellowship and all these things, he loves it. And again, because he loves it so much, he prays again now that he would not be enticed by sinners to go the way of sinners. Again, the fact that he continually keeps bringing this up 
shows me that he's been down that road in his life many times. And he knows and he doesn't underestimate the seriousness or the power that these things can present to us if we let them into our heads and into our minds. He prays again, Lord, help me to walk in integrity. And as he walks, he has confidence that his foot stands on a level place, that firm foundation, that solid rock that we've talked about through some of the other Psalms, the Lord. As he walks, he's confident because he knows in whom he believes. Now, we have that same foundation. We stand on Christ. We stand on him alone. Nothing else will be able to keep your foot from slipping. And many of us, unfortunately, learn that the hard way. But praise the Lord, we have a gracious God who continually forgives, who comes after us. He leaves the 99 for the one and he forgives over and over again because Christ has paid the penalty for all sins. This is the gracious nature. This is a God who is full of mercy, compassion and loving kindness. This is our Lord. Now let's finish off with Psalm 27. We had a great song. I love that song about Psalm 27, by the way. Um, we'll see that now as we get into it. The Lord, verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defence of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers come upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Through a host, though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. Now again, notice the details about God in this first verse. Well, I love the Psalms. There's so much theology in them, as well as being sort of poetic and so much human emotion in them. There's just, they're just rich. So we have this phrase, the Lord is light, salvation, and he's defense. So just in that first verse, we have three aspects of the Lord. He is light. He lights our path. He is our salvation. And that's kind of like the word Jesus there. You'd have that in the Hebrew. And he is also our defense. He protects us. That means we can run to him. He can be that refuge. Now, the theme of light is, again, it's a massive theme in the Old Testament, usually associated in the Hebrew mindset with spiritual light, uh, walking in the light. That's why you find this phrase, as opposed to darkness. It's often linked with salvation. Remember the famous uh, verse in Isaiah 49 that says, I will give you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And when we see that quoted in the book of Acts, it's being quoted as being fulfilled in Jesus. He is that light that brings salvation. So in this, this is the mindset. Light's always sort of spiritual light, salvation. These things are very closely uh, associated. It evokes the picture that we find in the Gospel of John, that Messiah is the I am the light of the world, John 8, 12. He is the one who brings salvation. Because of this, whatever comes at him, he can have confidence. In spite of this, it says... I shall be confident. Let's read verse 4. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. For in the day of trouble he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock and now my head, and now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me and I will will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy and I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Now I like this, the simplicity of a devoted life. Now we all know life can get very complicated or we have a way of making life complicated. Sometimes it's out of our control, but sometimes it's not. And here we see the devoted heart, the pilgrim's life stripped down. His longings are reduced to one in this little section here. Notice, one thing I have asked from the Lord, 
the whole force of his being is now concentrated upon one single aim. One thing I have desired that I will seek after, that he would dwell in the house of the Lord. Now, more often with us, we have many desires, don't we? It doesn't mean they're necessarily bad desires. That's not what I'm saying. But this, notice what's happening here. He's stripping it down, the simplicity of the devoted life. The world is constantly going to be throwing things or experiences that we may desire when we see them at us. And we need to be careful because look what it says. The, one thing he, the things he desires are the things he will seek. And that's a lesson for us. That which you desire, you will pretty much organize your life that you will seek that. So this is a matter of priorities. Now this can be a blessing in the sense of what David's talking about here. This is, but it can also be a warning. If you have desires that are not the same, that are actually going to work against this main desire. Because this should be the foundational desire of the believer's life. That desire is to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. David wants intimate communion with God all of his life, through all the times, all the ups, all the downs, all the emotions, every other feeling, the highs, the lows, all the days of his life, he wants to dwell in the house of the Lord. And then we have that beautiful expression, to behold the beauty of the Lord. This is something we don't often think about God in that sense, with the, with the word beautiful in that sense. I know I, I don't, you know, you think of some of the other terms, but the word here is that the Lord is beautiful. Now David has this communion with God as he reveals himself to us. This is really referring to it means such a massive term here, the sheer, indescribable, utterly incomprehensible beauty that the Lord contains within his very character, within his attributes, within his plans, within his love for us, within the world that he has created, within the shining brightness of his radiance that we cannot even look upon because he's so holy in that sense. He is totally, absolutely incomparable in any respect. Now, this is what the Lord is. This is the beauty of the Lord. Now, does that sound like something that is worth pursuing? Because it, it is and it is available to us as his children. In fact, that's where he wants to lead us. That is ultimately where we are being led to on the path of righteousness. Towards, as Pilgrim Frogger says, the celestial city. But that is the habitation, the dwelling place of God. That is the ultimate aim of the pilgrim. To have this sort of intimacy. This is the greatest desire we should have in life. However, let's be honest. What if it's not? If you're sitting here and you know in your own heart that, yes, you, know, you love being a Christian, you love worshipping, and all these things are great. But that sort of desire is something foreign to you. And we all have to be honest, I would say. We kind of, I believe in this world, we're constantly going to be fighting that sort of, I want to know the God more, but time just sort of gets away and the life picks up speed. And this, you know, I'm not putting a guilt trip on anyone. All of us know this feeling, this tension that I'm describing. If that is us, we need to do what David did. It's nothing amazing. It's a very simple thing. How does that verse start, the little section? It says, one thing I have asked from the Lord. You know, you ask the Lord for that. You know, it's not something that you can work to in that respect by, by trying to keep this code of conduct. God will know your heart. He wants you to ask him. He wants to know that you desire that sort of intimacy with God. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Show me, lead me, uh, teach me and lead me. Let's read verses uh, 7 to 10. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, and be gracious to me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. 
You have been my help. Do not abandon me or forsake me, O God of my salvation. For for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. And here he asks the Lord to be gracious to him. And he wants to be obedient to seek the Lord's face. And the language here to me, as I read this, it really sort of evokes the ironic blessing of Numbers chapter 6. The aspect of seeking God's face and then also right next to it being gracious to me. Do you remember Numbers uh, chapter 6 where it says, The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. I see that. This is probably, I believe, what David might have had in his mind here as he's saying, You said seek your face. I want to seek your face. Be gracious to me, Lord. Answer me. It's a very similar concept that we have here. And ultimately, for Christians, we, we have this same desire. Now, where do we find the ultimate fulfillment of this? I believe it's in Jesus Christ and in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. But this is the desire and the longing of every man, of every Christian. And we see this throughout the world. We know that the Hebrews, as we already talked about, they, for them it was the, the pursuit of light. The Lord is my light and my salvation, walking in light. They had the Shekinah, the cloud of fire, leading them through the darkness in the desert. They had the light of the menorah, the tabernacle. Their whole culture was surrounded by light in that respect. It was the sort of the spiritual concept. We see it in Proverbs 6. The commandment is a lamp. The teaching is a light. The unfolding of your word gives light. This is the concept. This was the Hebrew mindset. But then we also have, obviously, the Greek mindset, where it was all about knowledge. They had, they had the great philosophers, Plato, Aristotle. They had the academies. This was the thing, the search after knowledge. And knowledge is a good thing in some respect. You see knowledge lifted up all throughout the Bible, but it's a knowledge of God primarily that we're talking about. And then obviously in this culture where, you know, not in the time of the Psalms, we're stretching through now to the time of Jesus, you had the Roman culture, which was the dominant culture at that time. And the Romans, they sought, well, they sought peace actually and glory. The glory of Rome, the Pax Romana, they were proud of that peace, that massive empire that they'd created, their political, their military might. You see people hoping in these things today, don't you? Hoping in government is the same sort of thing as what the Roman Empire did. Strength of your military rather than trusting in the Lord. And then into this world, in the New Testament times I'm talking, we have this man, Paul, the Apostle Paul. He was born a Hebrew, a descendant of the tribe of Benjamin, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and ultimately from the tribe of Benjamin. But he was educated in all the the skills and learnings of not only the Torah, but also of the Greeks, the philosophers. And he was also a Roman citizen. In many respects, he was all things to all men, all the three dominant cultures that you had in this sort of worldview situation that he was thrust into and it's in 2 Corinthians 4 6 where he says this to the church in uh, in, uh, Corinthians he says for God who said let the light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God look where in the face of Christ Jesus and this takes us back to the link with our psalm you've said seek my face David replies I want to seek your face Be gracious to me and answer me. For us, we want to seek the face of Jesus Christ, where light, knowledge and glory are found in their ultimate expression and fulfilment. This is the ultimate aim of life. This is the single thing that we should be obsessed with in our life. When we strip our life down to that simplicity, this is the one thing that we desire, to be that close. When when you say, seek my face, you're talking about intimate communion, a very close personal fellowship, with the Lord. It's the single thing that we should have. Let's finish the psalm off now. Verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a level path because of my foes. 
Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such, and as such, breathe out violence. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. This is a final plea now, again, for the Lord to be his teacher, that he would be led on the right path. You see how often he, he does this? Like if David needs to ask for this, the Lord this often, we need to ask this of the Lord this often. You know, this is one of the things that, that Sunday morning should encompass. This is what it is. When we come to hear the word of God taught, this is the Lord leading us, instructing us in his truth in the way that we should go. David has this plea that he would walk on the right path and that the Lord would be his deliverer. And look at verse 13. He says, I would have despaired. And again, I love this verse because circumstances in life can cause us to despair quite often. And those who have no hope, as you look out into this world, you see people despairing all the time right now, confused, not knowing what to do. But notice what it says. It says, I would have despaired unless. And here we have the cure, the key for the Christian. We know this, but sometimes we don't live in the way that we actually take it into account in our lives. It says, unless I believed, I would have seen the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He doesn't look, you see, unless the goodness of the Lord. He knew it was true. He trusted it. Remember that first, what, in, in God I trust, in you I trust. I lift up my soul to you, in you I trust. He stood on that solid rock, that foundation. He knew it was his light. His, all of these things that we've just read in this psalm is David expressing his faith and his trust in the Lord. And that's why he knows the despair of this fallen world is only temporary. Ultimately, as a child of God, he will be carried through and the Lord he will be in that eternal glory with the Lord. Everything we've just described, all these things we've looked at in these Psalms, is something that is worth waiting for. Verse 14, the last verse, reminds us again, wait for the Lord. This continual asking of us to wait kind of implies that maybe we're a little impatient sometimes. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. So I would say we need to wait for the Lord. We wait for many things in life, quite expectantly. I waited over an hour to get into Wagamama's not too long ago, just last week. We all do things like that. I'm kind of being the butt of my own joke here because, like, we do that. But then I think in my life, when was the last time I actually sort of waited on an hour for the Lord? Now, I know you don't have, like, hours in the day just to sit there and wait on the Lord. It's more speaking of an expectant attitude in life as you go about your business. But still, we wait on many things that we desire, that we need to remember, we need to strip our life down to make sure that that one desire that David had to dwell in the house of the Lord is our first desire and everything else should flow from that in our lives. We be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Let's pray. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.